my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Hamish Thompson, a New Zealander by birth. Hamish is a seasoned global leadership executive and in his 30-year career, he's been a successful CEO slash regional president and global brand head for Mars Incorporated, a senior marketing and sales lead for Reebok International, and a fresh-faced account executive in the London advertising scene, a startup advisor and investor, board director and keynote speaker, he is the author of the widely published international business book, It's Not Always Right to Be Right, an autobiographical account of leadership and personal lessons relating to breakthrough and transformation. Um, Hamish, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. And at, at the end of the show, we'll, we'll touch on it again. But uh, just at the start, I'd like to uh, point out that if people want to learn more about you, they can uh, connect with you and, and read about you at uh, hamishrthompson.com. And I'll have that link in the show notes. So, um, you know, thank you very much for coming on and uh, welcome. Hey, Dave. Nice to be here and, uh, and good, to, good to connect. Yeah. Um, I, I want to start off in the beginning. Um, you were born and raised in New Zealand. Yeah, it's, um, I've, uh, I'm a passionate New Zealand supporter and uh, I'm a tragic All Black supporter, which is our, uh, our rugby team. So I spent a fair bit of time in the US and the, the Eagles uh, rugby team are, are developing, but uh, it is a different sport over there. So I, uh, I spent a uh, first part of uh, all my sort of youth growing up with an NZ. Um, and it's a beautiful part of the world. It's absolutely stunning, particularly the South Island, very scenic. Uh, outdoors adventure um, it's a good place to be honest um, but I think most New Zealanders and I'm even though I'm based in Australia at the moment uh, most Kiwis we're insanely curious and I think we are because you know that we're small and you need to see an outside in perspective and uh, that sort of travel bug sort of pushes us overseas and uh, and out and uh we, uh, we like perspective overall. So uh, following university, uh, jumped overseas, did the one year overseas experience into London, but that turned out about 10 or 12 years. Uh, got into the world of advertising and then sports and fitness within Reebok. Uh, went across to the, live in Amsterdam for a couple of years, uh, heading up European marketing, which was very cool. And then uh, after the birth of uh, our first kid, uh, we're three now, um, ventured back home and I joined uh, Mars Incorporated and I did 20 uh, wonderful years with them, a uh, variety of different sort of marketing global roles, uh, UK again, uh, Australia Pacific, a uh, fair bit of time in Chicago and probably the last 12 years sort of doing CEO uh, regional president roles 
Um, in the last couple of years, I took the crazy decision, which my wife and boss still think I'm uh, crazy. I resigned a uh, business that I love, but uh, I just wanted to do something different. So I got into a bit of writing, startup advising, investing, uh, a couple of boards for men's mental health suicide prevention, uh, which I'm pretty passionate around, um, and uh, enjoying myself. Can you talk a little bit about your book and, and really what led you to write that? What, in, what inspired the book? Yeah, it was, uh, it was originally, and it was, um, it was quite interesting after, and I know you sort of, when getting out of the fire service, you sort of, uh, you reflect on things. And um, I sat down virtually, the, I think it was the, the second evening um, after, you know, taking a, a change from big bad corporate world. And I started to almost document all those lessons that I think I had learned um, over a number of years. And I didn't do it for a book. Originally, I did it more for purely for the kids. So I thought, okay, uh, you talk to your kids. They never listen, of course. Um, but how do you almost document something? So I wrote down, I think I've got a list of about 67 or so. And um, no technical or functional elements or sort of leadership a lot of mistakes, but uh, observations, experiences along the way. Um, so originally, I purely documented for the kids. And then, uh, lo and behold, I started to sort of try and construct them. I started out in London advertising as a very average, crappy copywriter. <laughs> Quickly got sort of moved on to other things. So uh, the writing style came out and then uh, had a connection within Wiley, put it through to them and... Uh, they uh, said, yeah, let's turn it into a proper manuscript. So, um, yeah, enjoyable process, uh, good learnings, good insights. I'm a person who hates uh, theory without substance. So it's very sort of action oriented within uh, that sense and practical. Um, but uh, as I mentioned to you earlier when we spoke, it solidifies your thoughts around leadership, what's important, what your values are. Um, I'm sure they'll change over time, uh, which is uh, which is good because I'm open to change. But um, it's uh, it's been great to sort of solidify those experiences. Um, be before we started talking about your book, you you mentioned that uh, you're passionate about uh, men's mental health, uh, suicide prevention. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, listen, I've been very fortunate that uh, I haven't had any personal experience uh, in, in regard to my own sort of side. And um, I'm probably like sort of many, you're very aware of your triggers on, uh, on when you sort of get out of balance. And I've always been one, Dave, that uh, I believe that excellence in business, you have to have excellence within life. And I think getting that balance. But at the same time, uh, like every single one of your viewers and listeners, um, we all know people who've gone through um, mental health issues. And uh, I've known that right throughout my life. And uh, I've had a lot of people work-wise, but also personal uh, friends who've had uh, depression against that. And uh, unfortunately, some uh, have succumbed to suicide. So it's a, um, it's a cause that I'm passionate around, uh, I believe, the awareness is uh, unbelievably strong at the moment, which is great. So I think men have fostered uh, an encouragement of discussing openness and awareness. What I'm more interested in is this, uh, you know, Facebook have that quote, don't confuse motion for impact. 
And uh, I like that. So how do you turn self or awareness into self-development? So what are those practicalities that you can bring to a workplace environment, a community, a sporting event, et cetera, beyond asking are you okay? After that, what are those practical elements to be able to help people? Um, so a uh, big believer in it, uh, but uh, I think we're only touching the surface. And unfortunately, COVID's accelerated a lot of those uh, sort of lack of connection issues. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good cause and uh, something I'm pretty passionate around. What is the organization that, that you are currently working with? Yeah, it's called OzHelp, um, and it's probably been around for the last 20 odd years. It's one of Australia's leading sort of mental health providers, but they focus on high risk, hard to reach male dominated areas. So think in regard to firefighting within uh, that, particularly within rural areas, building in construction. Uh, unfortunately, within that, it's the male stigma. And uh, I think from a New Zealand, the sort of male perspective, it's often hard to talk around these areas, mining, farming, transport, logistics. Um, so that's the sort of focus on it. And unfortunately, rates within those high risk, hard to reach locations uh, are actually six times prevalence uh, in regard to normal suicide statistics. So great people know what they're doing, good cause, but how do you extend their reach? Um, and one quote, I, it's a lot of uh, foundations and non-for-profits, they miss, I think, the importance of being commercial and effective. And there's a great quote that says, uh, performance without purpose is meaningless, but purpose without performance is impossible. And that's where I think the blend between commercial and purpose-led organizations is very strong. If you're commercial, if you're effective, efficient within your operations, you can really extend your reach. And your reach is about the ability to help more people, serve more people, uh, and make a difference within, uh, within the lives. So uh, I think that's where even things from climate change, sustainability, uh, human rights, et cetera, purpose-led organizations now, um, they're making a difference because they're commercial, they can be fast, they can be nimble, they can be agile. So I quite like that balance, actually. What are some of the, the things that this organization does to, to have an impact? on that, uh, that area, the, the vocation that you're, the vocations that you're talking about? Yeah, mainly, um, well, I suppose sort of almost twofold. So one, getting that awareness up in the first place and then the encouragement to have people talk. So OzHelp will go into multiple different businesses uh, directly and have discussions with workers. So for example, within building sites, uh, they'll actually have overall sessions with all the workers to discuss on that, but equally um, set up a sort of one-on-one -on -one session. So you'll have your health screening, which talks around your sleep patterns, your uh, connections in regard to family, friends, community. Are you aware of financial elements, diet, nutritional, exercise? Uh, you think around within the transport industry, very lonely in regard to long stretches, lack of uh, connectivity within that. So it's having those discussions, placing obviously contact points in regard to relevant counselling services if need be, um, but bringing awareness to the issue and then some of those sort of practical elements uh, and support. Um, great people uh, and uh, 
if I can support and add value on that sort of commercial lens to extend that reach, um, I think it's uh, I think it's valuable. But as you're aware, there are many organisations, and it's uh, it's pretty humbling on uh, on that front. And I know within your background as well, um, my God, the uh, the exposure that you guys and girls have uh, see or have seen on a daily basis. Uh, it's the same within vets, obviously, as well. It's uh, it's something you've got to take quite seriously. Yeah, I'm interested to to learn more about your book. Uh, the the autobiographical part of your book. I'm guessing you you talk about your personal experiences, but where do you start in your book? Do you start when uh, your your personal professional development as a young adult, or do you start even younger than that? Yeah, I, I don't have a set format within there. And uh, my personality is uh, I like new and I like different. So the very first element is, uh, is probably um, talking around my values and my sort of beliefs and what I've sort of learned over time. And it's not chronological in, in regard to sort of order wise. Um, and I think my opening talks around going back onto that substance without theory. There are thousands of leadership books that I've probably sort of started. And uh, I don't know about you, I probably get within the first 50 pages and I put them down because very theoretical, very academic, but uh, not practical or action oriented. So I'm a very results oriented person. Um, I think I'd probably describe myself as a, a pragmatist within there. Um, but I want stuff that you get an insight, but then what can you do with that insight? Um, so I've developed probably around sort of 40 different sort of models and all that I talk around. And these are leadership learnings and insights that I've garnered over this 30 years, some through mistakes, well, in fact, many through mistakes. And I think that's a... You know, you talk around that about embracing failure and really sort of making the most of those. And an insight is a wonderful thing, providing you do something with it. And how do you get that conversion rate uh, within that? And just even on that front, you know, providing as a leader psychological safety to people to allow them to make mistakes uh, and then not get into the directing mode, be able to coach, etc. So that's probably the element. And one thing, Dave, which... Uh, I think uh, I've liked around the book, uh, at the end of every chapter and every subject, um, I've got a different contributing editor to come in. And these are other CEOs, global corps, uh, consultants, um, different authors, diplomats, uh, lawyers, um, right across that sort of field. They come in and I've got them for a couple of pages to critique my thoughts, to challenge, to either build on them or discard in some ways. And I like that perspective. I had a boss who once told me, Hamish, your mind works like a parachute, best when open. And uh, <laughs> I like being challenged. It's, uh, it's different on that. And that's, uh, I said, my views, I know they'll change over time. So I'm the typical CEO arrogant. And I have this view here. But I know over time when I hear different views, if I'm going right and someone's saying left, I now start to think, why aren't I going left? And that's different from when I was a, when I was a young pup. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm very curious about your career, uh, starting off in, in London and 
really making your way through the corporate world. I, I'm guessing you didn't start off at the CEO level, but <laughs> had to work your way up, um, making mistakes along the way. How did you maintain your upward mobility through that growth? I mean, you not everybody is going to achieve the levels that you've achieved. Um, I, I'm wondering if you've been able to distill uh, maybe those, those success principles that you applied in your own life. Um, and what is it about you that, that helped you achieve so much when others haven't been able to, to break through to that level? Yeah, I I don't know, and I think it's uh, it's all relative within within that sense. So, on a resume, um, yeah, okay, I've I've achieved a, a few sort of things w- within there, um, but it's probably how you uh, how you interpret or define success w- within that sense. And I think that the way that I would place it is, uh, I've never ever had. A what I term a career ceiling in mind. Um, I've never had a restriction sort of level about what I think I could uh, or could not achieve. Um, and it's not saying that uh, there's a degree of arrogance within that. It's just that I've never sort of seen it as a barrier. But at the same time, even though now I advise people to do it to get ahead of that curve and to really plan the, in advance, and I've got a, a chapter within that talking around actually getting ahead of the curve and planning out in the future. Um, I never did that. I never set out to be a uh, you know, vice president, a CEO, a regional president, marketing director, any of those elements. Um, they just happened. But at the same time, I never had a barrier in front of me. Um, and I think the, the, the other elements, which is probably what I've enjoyed the most, is I am that curious person. I like being exposed to new and different things. Um, I've got a chapter titled Constant Dissatisfaction, and it's not a healthy one. A healthy dissatisfaction is when you look at things that are not working and you'll want to improve them. Um, I've got one of those frustrating styles that even when things are working, the status quo, what do you need to do to get in front? And there's an ex-All Blacks coach, and his name is uh, Steve Hansen, and he's got a quote that says, you don't need to lose to learn, but it sure helps. And I love that, but how do you actually get ahead of that curve so you don't need to get yourself into a, into a learned position, um, so you don't need to get yourself into a lose position? And there's a variety of methodologies and models, et cetera, to be able to sort of push yourself out of that comfort zone uh, before things are broke. How do you get ahead of that? How do you set your own agenda, et cetera? So that's where I think it is. And um, I think it's really important in a lot of the uh, mentoring that I will do to young execs now, when you start out, don't set yourself a ceiling of where you can get to, but equally, don't get into prove mode. So normally, most people start a new job in the first three months, they won't provide too much input. Your first three months, to me, are the most valuable for yourself as a learning experience, but equally, it's your opportunity to give fresh eyes and perspective It's reverse mentoring into head people within there, telling her and him what something they probably don't get exposed to directly from their leadership team. 
most leaders, their direct leadership team, they think exactly like yourself. They say they're different within diversity, but a majority of the time they think in a very model to think like the leader thinks. You want people to come in, fresh eyes perspective, says it as it is, external perspective, insanely curious. Um, so it's a really key element, I think, within the start of someone's career. And equally, don't start changing or refining who they are. Um, follow what's true to them, which is all around 100% authenticity, obviously. Is that how you uh, started off early on in your career? Did you, you know, develop I, I, that? Um, I think you develop over time that confidence and regard. I've always been, as I said, I've always been insanely curious. Um, uh, but I think I've also always sort of uh, have had a challenge sort of mindset. Um, and uh, I think as long as you do that respectfully um, and challenge and provoke and think around possibilities, I think is, is key to it. Um, one, one element that uh, I, I think has always been quite a, a positive sort of attribute um, is a concept called drains and radiators, um, which uh, I think most people sort of intuitively guess. A drain is, and we're all surrounded by them, you know, it's a, uh, a drain is, does exactly what it says. Um, they suck the lifeblood out of possibility. There's negativity. There's limiting beliefs on what can be done. Um, and often the best, uh, sorry, the worst drains are those who've had historical success or historical experience because they're not willing to change. And they always think there's a, a reason for things that are happening and they don't look at possibility. Um, and I used to say it's the worst thing for a leader to have a drain around them, but it's actually worse for your team because uh, it uh, permeates right across an organization. Whereas a radiator is a positivity, possibility mindset, um, looks for opportunity, radiates uh, inspiration right across a wider group. And I think I've always had that from day one around that po uh, possibility. And you don't have to be an extrovert. I'm uh, you know, I'm a pretty sort of, as my wife says, I've got a face for radio and I'm very monotone and quite sort of you know, measured. But uh, it's uh, as long as I think you've got that possibility mindset and positivity, which I think I've always had. And uh, that works in personal life as well as it does. And don't get me wrong, we all have our drain moments. Yeah, it's good to have a moan and stuff on that. Um, but by heck, you don't want them for, uh, for too long. So that's something now. Um, I really encourage within uh, business or my leadership teams right throughout an organization, how do you get that pos uh, positivity? And it's not a Pollyanna. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't have to agree with everything. You still want a challenger and a hard-ass sort of financial officer, really, you know, she or he's pushing hard. But uh, it's, uh, I think it's really important on that front. Can you recall some defining moments in your career, maybe some of those profound learning opportunities that uh, that helped shape or or helped guide you on a on a certain path or trajectory. Yeah, I think uh, I think there are many that sort of shape you over time, and I'm I'm always curious when I hear of others' experience. They sort of pull out one or two sort of defining ones, um, and. Uh, I don't know if I've actually got defining ones. I've got multiple ones, and I'll, I'll talk around sort of one or two. But uh, um, 
I'm curious as to people who have those defining moments and I sort of get back about to, do you need to go through one of those to really get that insight? And that's, uh, that's the bit that I'd encourage and I try and encourage most people. How do you get to that knowledge without having to go through those pain periods? Um, how do you get to that earlier within your career? So I talked around being purposeful. Majority of people, you know, I'm 52 now, majority of people within their uh, 20s, 30s, um, they don't really get to that philosophical state about it's not being about me, it's about others until your 40s. So how do you get to that earlier? Um, my one's probably the, the one that uh, I talk around, um, I've got a concept around the man who used to smile. And uh, this happened when I was living in the Netherlands. Um, and pretty cool place, 27 year old living in Amsterdam, uh, looking after European sports and marketing, all the events uh, with uh, you know, a young, uh, young sort of wife and uh, you know, one kid along the way. It was hard not to enjoy yourself. Yet I got introduced by a very good friend of mine, a Scotsman called Colin, and he introduced me to his wife and he said, or his fiance, and he said, uh, Pam, I'd like you to meet Hamish, the man who used to smile. And <laughs> he sort of pulled his eye, what the hell do you mean? And the whole concept was that I started to take things way too seriously. And importantly, I started to try and be the executive and the senior leader that I thought other people wanted me to be, as opposed to being, this is my style, this is what works for me. And it was a real sort of wake up call. And I went through, I've done this sort of two or three times in my career. There's a great center for, uh, it's called Center for Creative Leadership, CCL, based out of Colorado Springs, which is a beautiful part, very similar to New Zealand, probably as you know, uh, Boulder. Um, and, uh, the same message came across. Not really, don't know if this leadership gig's all that important. And it was important because it was about define your own leadership style. What's important to you? What are the values? Your style works or it doesn't. Refine it, but don't fundamentally change who you are. And that was a really sort of key lesson. As soon as I started to do that, hey, we've all got warts and all, I've got so many weaknesses within. I don't have to be the most charismatic or flashy sort of, uh, sort of leader. My style works for me. And as long as you're being authentic, I think the majority of people will respect that. And that's where trust and depth of relationships, I think, are absolutely critical. And you would have seen it with all your guests, no matter how technically or functionally brilliant or expert they will be, if they haven't got solid relationships and have worked on that, uh, it's very limiting. You'll get exceptions, but majority of time, relationships come way ahead of law and logic. What are some of the values that you've tried to foster in the organizations that you've led? Yeah, and I think it's um, my sort of view on it is everyone's got different values and it's not to say that somebody else's values are right or wrong, they're just different. And I do think diversity of thought is critical within any organization. So I always encourage that, but you need to actually set those values and boundaries of what you want within your organization. So those are key. So my personal ones have always been trust, dignity, trust, dignity and respect. And 
I've tried to foster that through the teams, the leaders, the people that I have around me that will have consistent values to those. I want them to think vastly different from me. I want them to challenge. Um, and I think a good leader, and I've started to do this probably in the last maybe 12 years, I value others' opinions ahead of valuing my own. And there is a decision-making hierarchy. You'll make at the end. But I, uh, I'm very curious around hearing from other, uh, from other people. And it's totally okay to have your views, et cetera, challenged but you want those consistency of values uh, to, to be able to come across. Um, and probably sort of linked to that, I think the main sort of side, that which I've experienced, this is the, the title of the book, It's Not Always Right to Be Right. Uh, I used to be one of those leaders, um, and you grow up thinking this, that you have to be right every single time. That's what a leader does. I always used to think that. So I'd get in debates, dialogues, discussions, uh, diatribe, dive back and forth, and I was quite good at it. It was intellectual sparring, and uh, I used to, the majority of cases, I'd, uh, I'd win within that, and after a while, and this sort of got to me sort of around the 30s, I realized, well, yeah, okay, you may be winning these one-off transactions, but one, I have massive limitations in regard to getting new ideas and concepts through, because I'm already listening. I think I'm right. I'm not listening to them. So I'm not seeking to understand before being understood, which is really critical. Um, two, I had one-off transactional wins, but then I started to sort of step back and you will never get a break. Well, very seldom you get a breakthrough or a transformation in results when you haven't developed a depth and a trust of relationship. But if I'm right and you're always wrong, and I tell you that the whole time, we're never going to develop a mutual relationship. So no. stage two and stage three, that's why people go through multiple uh, multiple marriages. <laughs> I think you, you, know, you have to actually develop that. So selfishly, I realized to get a breakthrough, you need to develop longer term relationships and you can't always be right. And then the last one, which probably hurt as a leader, because I do... I think one of the leader's first jobs are unlocking potential within others. If you're always right, nobody challenges you and you don't develop your people under you because they're almost resigned to inertia. No point challenging this guy. He's always going to be right. So it's just a, a walk away and I'll keep my opinions to myself. So, the, you know, the best leaders, you compromise, you listen to others ahead of yourself. You show humility, massive vulnerability when you get things wrong because you can help other people along the way. Um, but I learned pretty quickly, stop being right. And I think that's a, a key value. Uh, you don't always have to be right. Yeah, no, that's huge. No, I, I, wish, I wish early on in, in my leadership roles, I had had that mindset. And I think anybody that, serves in a leadership position for long enough has that you know meets those crossroads and it's like oh yeah maybe i i should dial back the ego here it's a it, it's it's an easy one to say isn't it i always sort of i'm i've got one of these uh, contributing authors sort of challenged me on this uh, aspect I've got within one chapter, which talks around uh, respected and liked. 
And it'll be very interesting within uh, within your industries, you know, obviously within the Navy, but also, uh, the, you know, the fire force uh, forces. Um, I've got a very firm view that the very best leaders are those who are respected, but also liked. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, because a lot of people with different views on this from me. The respect is a given. You, unless you're respected as a leader, we all know this, um, you will never be able to have crucial conversations and development, et cetera. Um, but those leaders who I've looked at over time, who are those leaders that have actually stepped up, gone beyond my job description, worked incredible hours, and in my terms, walk over coals for? Um, and those are the leaders that I respect, undeniably, but also like. And when they have a crucial conversation with me, I know, even though it may be hard and I get a grilling or something, that's sort of a bit of a, you know, a scolding, if you like, um, I know they're starting from a position of genuine care. And when that comes from somebody who you like, and you think around respected family and friends, even when I go back on that mental health sort of element, when people have a discussion with you that's a crucial and a difficult one, if they start from a position of genuine empathetic care, you know it's coming from a good place. So the challenge I got on this concept of walking over coals, hot coals for people you respect and like, the challenge came back and said, a great leader will walk over burning coals for their people. And it was just a different way to sort of look at it. That That's truly what an exceptional leader does. They're there, and that's obviously that concept of servant leadership, but you're there as a leader to walk over heaps of, it. you know, you, you'll do anything for those people who work for you. Um, and I really liked that. I, I, I did, I liked that concept. Another one just very quickly related to that. Um, I've, we've all been involved in different sort of engagement surveys and Gallup and things, and it's, uh, it's great. And I always thought as a leader, you want your team to love you. So you want these great scores. It's pretty easy for your team to love a leader because if you don't get on with your leader, the leader's not going to get hurt that much. It's going to be you who's going to miss the promotion, miss the development opportunities, the freedom and autonomy. The real challenge for a leader is how do you get your team to love each other, to really work and trust each other? And even if that goes against you as a leader, that's all right, because that's where the magic happens. And you think around those, you know, lieutenants or whatever who work together, you know, and they form their camaraderie and the high performance team environment. And there's all processes and models to be able to go through, but uh, it's a different way of looking at it. And that's where I think the best leaders are often the unassuming, humble ones. And the last thing I'll say, though, because I'm rambling on this, but there's a great Maori uh, proverb, which is the indigenous population for uh, New Zealand. Um, and it says, the sweet potato or the kumra does not have to say how sweet it is. And uh, I like that. And that's uh, unassuming leadership, which for me uh, works incredibly well. I, I want to touch on the, um, you mentioned respect. And very similar to what you just said about the sweet potato, uh, one of the things that I would teach in um, the Lieutenant's Academy, it's a company officer academy for 
those individuals that are about to be promoted or they're aspiring to promote to the company officer position. Uh, one of the first things that I would let them know, well, I mean, we'd have discussions around this. And, you know, I was, whenever I would teach, I was typically in my classy uniform, which is a button down short sleeve shirt with a badge and, you know, the ribbons and, you know, gold bugles on my, my collar. And I would always say, have you ever had an officer that grabbed their brass and, you know, said, I'm the one with the bugles, you'll do what I say. And I said, those are the individuals that need those bugles to feel important. You know, if, if you're going to lead people, the last thing that you want to do is rely on those bugles to get them to do what you want. You know, it has to be, they have to know that you're putting them first, you know, that, that the mission is, you know, to elevate them. So when you put your people first and they know that, there's never any reason to grab your, the brass. You know, that, I think that's the, the best way to lose respect is to, you know, revert to your rank as a reason for people to, to follow you or do what you say. Um, like you said, the sweet potato doesn't need to tell you how sweet they are. You know, I don't need to tell you that I'm the guy in charge. I mean, that if I'm the guy in charge, then I'm the guy in charge and I'm responsible for the team. And that means developing those relationships, understanding what they want to achieve or what they look to gain from, from being on my team. Um, and I have to work really hard at learning the skills that I want to uh, instill in them or develop in them. So, yeah, it, it's, I think, all about that servant leadership. It's a, it's a very nice it's a very nice and compelling way to describe it. I've never actually sort of thought around uh, around that gra grabbing and using that as a, uh, a badge of power as of such. It's um, It comes down to an inner confidence though, doesn't it, around when you're confident enough to know that power is a privilege and yet it can be abused within there. And it is just a different style of leadership. And, uh, you know, probably 30 years back, it's pretty sort of similar. We all think of experiences within that. Um, it still happens today. There's no doubt around it. You know, we see it everywhere. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but uh, I think most people now don't relate to it. And the reason that I think I personally don't relate to it is it doesn't unlock that potential within others. And whether that's parenthood experience, you know, sort of tenure, age or whatever it is, um, that is probably the most compelling, inspiring element of leadership that, uh, that I think everyone talks around. And it's, it's quite interesting. I've, uh, as yeah, I mentioned to you earlier when we were discussing, I don't think I'll be a serial writer. It's been different fun 
the last three months with Wiley and they were tremendous, but the editing process, bloody hell, what a, what a nightmare that, that is. It's so tedious as, as you yeah. know. Um, however, the concept of, um, of people that I've spoken to at CEO sort of level, I always sort of asked them, I said, what would you do differently if you had your time again? And there's a concept behind this, I think, which possibility with another book around, if I knew then what I know now. And they always say three things. Well, they say two things. And the third one, probably, probably 50% of people say, first two are, I wish I'd gone bolder and I wish I'd gone faster. And the third one, which is around 50% will say is, I wish I'd been more purposeful but done it earlier within my career. And when you dig deeper on that, it's purposeful within impact community, you know, wider environment, planet, et cetera. But it always comes back to, I wish I'd thought of other people and put them ahead of myself uh, earlier. And that's the element. And what I'm, I'm slightly different from other people, I think the youth of today and this new generation, and yeah, you can argue around, you know, different elements. Uh, I'm incredibly optimistic. I think they're coming through with less biases than us, a, a more of a community global spirit um, and a positivity and a possibility mindset of things can be different. And I think they are more purposeful from an earlier age than uh, potentially my generation as well. Um, and we've talked around it a fair bit, but you're so right around the importance of that relationships and I've got, what's the first chapter in the book? It says relationships or law logic relationships. And there was a lesson I learned very early that your relationships and there's processes and models to develop relationships. They don't just come naturally. It's like anything. They are actually so much more important than the law and logic. They're more important than technical or functional expertise. We all see amazingly brilliant people with incredible, creative, innovative ideas. But if they don't have those partnerships and others to build off and the integrators and connectors of people, um, God, they fail dismally. And it doesn't, sometimes there's exceptions, there always are to life. Uh, but those who are not connectors and relationships of depth and trust and quality, um, in my belief, they, are, they limit that possibility. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that 100%. There's the outliers, but for the most part, there, there's, I mean, throughout my career in the fire service, there's those individuals that are just superstars, but their people skills suck. So nobody wants them on their team. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a hard one when you're in a leadership position, if you've got someone who's technically and functionally very strong, and um, I've probably three or four times in my career, I've uh, kept people who are incredibly gifted within their jobs, and I've kept them at senior levels for way too long. And in that uh, analogy used before, they're drains. And what I should have done very earlier is actually remove them from the organization, uh, but did it incredibly quickly before having a negative impact. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a leader, whenever you make an organizational design change, redundancies, exiting people, you should feel personal pain. People talk around leadership as though, no, it's just business. 
I, I don't agree. When you impact with any personal life, you should feel pain and angst within that. That's what good leadership is around. However, every single occasion that I've exited somebody from the business, if their mindset or value consideration or their negativity wasn't right for the organization, wonderful achievement for the organization, boost immediately within that, even if you've lost technical skills, but also for the individual, it takes the pressure off, the, off them. If it's an environment where they can't thrive in their personality, it's not saying their personality is wrong, it's just not right for that organization. And I've got, uh, David, um, I've got a hiring philosophy that I've had for a number of years, and it's called C plus W is greater than E. Curiosity and willingness is greater than experience. And it's not always the case. You know, you're not going to put your uh, frontline <laughs> firefighter out there with no experience and very passionate on that. But if you're curious and you know there's a way and you're consistently seeking new learning opportunities, insights, and making yourself better, you'll find uh, weaknesses that you've got with a lack of experience. And if you're willing, and I term that as very passionate within that to close those gaps, um, you know, that's the type of people I want surrounding uh, myself, but also equally uh, for the benefit of my teams or organizations. Now, have you been doing many speaking engagements that that are focused on the content of your book? Yeah, yeah yes, yes and no. I, um, I have in regard, and I've got a sort of series of things that I talk around uh, expectations. And uh, I do it from a CEO lens, expectations of exceptional leaders, uh, expectations of uh, exceptional agencies and partners, um, and you know, of graduates, of new recruits, of different departments, et cetera. So I've linked that in, and I talk around a lot of the concepts within the, within the book as well. Um, and I've done that to you know, a variety of sort of multinationals and things who I relate to because I know their world. Um, but equally, the last couple of years, uh, I've been immersed within the startup community and I've invested within a couple of sort of, uh, uh, sort of global, sort of small sort of startups within digital food and one even within neuroplasticity. Um, different sort of cognitive learning things, which are totally different for me. But I like the entrepreneur's agility and mindset, but equally, I like around some of the discipline, the processes and procedures that I've learned from the classical business world. Um, and again, not one is right or wrong, but I think that balance actually works in together. Um, so I, I like that. But every speaking engagement that I have, um, I genuinely enjoy the Q&A and the challenge. I actually, I'm slightly different that I like to get that views and challenges out. And uh, I, I, I learn different things like, I'll take away from this, your uh, concept of uh, actually using that badge of power, um, which often doesn't work uh, for the best results. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. <laughs> and and when you're the person that that is following a knucklehead like that, it becomes very frustrating because there is no talking to that individual. Yeah, uh, you you're right on that. There's a uh, I've got a concept called bad bosses are great bosses, um, and the reason I put that is right throughout your career, we've all had them, you will come across bad bosses, fortunately not too many, and I've been in wonderful businesses where 
I haven't had too many, but you come across them. And most people, and I encourage this to, you know, sort of uh, even my sort of kids as they getting near that stage of getting into the sort of working world, when you come across a bad boss, um, don't look at it as though, Christ, I've got to get out of here and I've got to do something completely different and uh, there's no learning opportunity. You often learn incredible insight and context as opposed to content from a bad boss. Um, what are those behaviours that you don't resonate with? What are those uh, actions, mindsets, personality traits that don't get the best out of other people? And how do you ingrain them? And unfortunately, there's a concept which you're aware of called the negativity bias. You often learn more around what not to do than what to do. So the documentation, and there's uh, models and processes, document all those learnings that you experience or witness or uh, see firsthand the pain points from a bad boss, take that context into it. Um, and there's always amazing learning opportunities. And uh, I always view those bad bosses and when you get a grilling experience, yeah, they hurt, but uh, my God, they're amazing learning opportunities to come out of them. Um, so you need to document them. And then as you go further within your career, you socialize those and talk around those because they are valuable. You talk around the vulnerability and hurt how it made you feel as a leader. And when you put high emotion with high fact, um, people relate to that thing. Geez, I, I don't want to you know, display that uh, type of behavior with a leader because it had this personal impact on someone. So storytelling, we all know it. Probably in my sort of marketing days, uh, you can do amazing things with storytelling. Um, I was always told the definition of marketing uh, to me is actually uh, changing conversations and uh, I like that you uh, the power of terminology and language or the power of storytelling um, you know I think back and this is coming from another side of the world but you know the 9-11 experience you hear the stories that come through and the way they are told of values and passion um, and vulnerability my God, that's so powerful. And the, the benefit that derives onto others is huge within that. So uh, I'm a massive believer within the, the power of uh, good language, um, even if it's not always Kiwi language. <laughs> Through this conversation, uh, actually probably over the last uh, 10 minutes or so of our conversation, uh, one thing keeps on popping into my head. There's just some similarities to some uh, conversations that I've had over the last month or so with regard to leadership, but more, you know, what you were just saying about those lessons learned from the bosses that we don't want to be like. Um, those, the ones that stand out the most for me and, and many others is the, the boss that micromanages the hell out of you. And how do you navigate that sort of relationship where you might be pretty deep into your career and all of a sudden you've got a new boss and they want to micromanage you when you're pretty well versed in the position that you're in uh, and being micromanaged is, is something new altogether, especially when you've been successful so far in that position that you've been in. That, that is the most frustrated that I have ever been 
um, in the fire service. And, and, and I didn't know how to navigate it. And I, and I feel like I failed as a leader. Um, I was in a leadership position, but I've, I've had this mindset that to be a good leader, you have to first be a good follower. And I had a really hard time following that individual. Um, I, I, it's just the most frustrating thing in the world to be micromanaged by somebody, especially when they're still learning their job. So, yeah. Did you, uh, <laughs> have you, well, have you garnered a solution in, in regard to that uh, in, in since? No, I, I, that's why I was bringing it up because I, I was yeah. wondering if you uh, have come across this and um, maybe found a way to navigate that. Listen, uh, I've definitely come across this. I think we, we all do at times. And uh, I talk around, you know, some of the, I term it a subset of, uh, of my sort of values. And that's what I enjoy around uh, just the way I operate and freedom and autonomy are really high up there. And you have to earn your sort of right in regard to freedom. I think the first thing on that is, and I'll probably talk two elements, one about when as a leader, how it's important to give that freedom autonomy. And I think there are ways to be able to do that. But then, you know, more to your point around if you have got somebody micromanaging you. If you're somebody micromanaging you, I think you have to firstly try and develop that trust with that person. Um, and very first way of uh, alum, you know, endearing trust is actually deliver what you say you're going to be, uh, what you're going to deliver. So accountability and responsibility for your results. And generally, you majority of people should be able to do that. Um, you know, at that level, if they're being micromanaged within something that they know very well. I think normally from a boss's perspective, who does micromanage, is because they lack confidence in their own ability as well. And they can't handle sort of that failure aside. So when you deliver what you say you deliver, that to me allows you freedom to actually um, develop and uh, and sort of grow and get out of that comfort zone and try new things and opportunities. So I think the first thing is I would encourage people: you deliver, but then you contract back with your line manager and with your boss around one here's my stretch and development opportunities and try and have the discussion around, which I term situational leadership. You will be providing me um, as your subordinate, the best development opportunities when you coach and mentor as opposed to situational direct and tell me what to do. Now it won't work with everyone, but when you provide context to people, and to say that my best development opportunities are advising, coaching, supporting, as opposed to directing, giving me the answers, a good leader will sit back and reflect and actually think, okay, where are those elements where I will put my hands in and I feel you actually need directing, um, but where are those elements that I'll sit back? And when you contract, I think it's always a good idea to contract with your line manager what are those areas that we're prepared to fail in? And this is where that psychological safety as a, as a leader is. When a leader contracts with somebody, it's okay if we don't 
not have success within 30% of the business, for example. The other 70, I'm going to hold you to account and you're going to do things this way. Not my style, but if they do that, that's okay. But that 30%, if things go wrong within that, um, it's all right. What have we learned from it? What are those insights that come out of it? And then the leader can hold that person accountable for learning and getting better and taking those learnings into stage two. Um, and I think from a leader's side, I've always viewed it that you are never, as long as you micromanage someone, one, you're never going to get the best out of people and you won't actually develop them. But it's not allowing you to be on top of the business as opposed to in the business. And you do need thought leadership time and the ability to step outside, look for a different adjacencies, perspective, curiosity coming in. And you cannot do that if you demand perfection or you get within situational leadership and directing as opposed to coaching. Um, it is a tough one, but you go back on about bad bosses, you've probably ingrained that within your leadership style, sounds as though you have, that, my God, now I'm in these leadership positions, I will not follow that. And that's a, it's another one. It's an um, invaluable lesson that you know doesn't bring the best out of people. So how do you actually, uh, how do you do that? And then the other one is a leader. If you have to micromanage someone the whole time, um, figuring about even style, you probably haven't got the right person uh, working with you, showing that development as well. Um, it's a tough one, though. I had reached out to, at, you know, talking about this particular situation in my career, I had reached out to my mentor at the time to get direction uh, on how to deal with it. And he suggested I read this particular book and I don't even remember it. It was very frustrating to get that from my mentor because um, I knew he had insight on how to deal with it. He just didn't want to take the time. Um, also because he was the person responsible for putting that person in charge of me. <laughs> Those were actually some, some good lessons for me. Uh, I also learned from that one I didn't like being told I should read this book you know I wanted to you know have a conversation and and get some coaching uh, and so moving forward when I either witnessed one of my um, company officers micromanaging their their team I would take some time to work with them and say hey listen you know what I've been seeing is micromanagement behavior. Do you need more time to coach and develop those individuals? Or is it that maybe you might have some insecurities about those different items that maybe we need to develop together um, in that way? Because I want to make sure that I'm giving them the attention that they need so that they feel confident in their abilities. Unfortunately, the particular, this one particular individual and instance that I'm talking about, the, the person just had that kind of personality where they were, they were pretty insecure and probably didn't need to be in that position. Um, 
So. Yeah, you're, uh, that goes back again about that inner confidence or the lack of inner confidence within that. And those insecurities, they, uh, when we talk around that power of storytelling, it's, a, it's amazing as a leader, when you show that vulnerability, you'll get that depth of trust, uh, et cetera, but people relate to that. They, uh, they understand it, it allows them to be sort of very authentic within that and that unlocks things. I'm a, I'm a massive believer and I think everyone's got incredibly uh, amount of dormant, untapped potential. And one way I think that good leadership does that is how do you set very stretch and ambitious targets that force people to do things differently? And I've uh, got a, a concept and a model developed which I use over time called the 30% rule. And you'll take one part of your business, and this is similar to what I talked around about sort of risk-taking. Um, you set an ambitious target that, in this case, 30%, but it may be 80%, maybe 200%, but the only way to achieve it is doing something completely different that's ever been done before. So your current methodologies, ways of working, processes, uh, thought, mindset, will not be able to achieve that. And the only way you can do it is external perspective, thinking completely out of the box. And what it does as a leader, you can't, because you don't have the solution yourself, you can't get into directing mode. You can only get into coaching, support, advice, mentor, here's the connections, have you considered this adjacency? And it's a wonderful stretch opportunity that is an unlocker of potential and the amount of times that people will discuss new, discover new methodologies to be able to get to things they didn't think possible is absolutely huge. Now, don't get me wrong, heap of failures happen within that, but virtually every single occasion, there's insight and it actually stretches an individual's mindset of what is possible and they develop new competencies. And for a leader, that's about providing that psychological safety. You accept failure, you embrace failure, you celebrate it, you talk around it, um, but equally, you really look for the insight that comes out and you have to not direct, but equally, you have to accept uh, less imperfection. And even if you've got an idea of how it could be done, the process to go through, um, it's not about you as an individual, it's around letting the others actually discover it. Uh, and I love that and I try and incorporate that within every one of uh, people within my leadership team, but also right throughout the business. And uh, people have got so much dormant, untapped potential, uh, even old buggers like myself, uh, I think there's so much more <laughs> we can offer, we just don't have a clue about it yet. With regard to your book, I can tell just through the conversation that that the the work that you've put into it, the goal is to help the people that read it achieve some some pretty good growth, um, learn some lessons that you've learned through your career. What um, do you feel that there are some key takeaways or the the ideal readership of your book yeah but possibly i think um I, I think the most key elements and i know it's discussed uh you know so many elements is around this concept of authenticity um but i think that 
all exceptional leadership at all levels, and it's not even leadership, is around being um, 100% authentic. And I hope that's the key takeaway from this, because I show warts and all, a lot of my mistakes and everything over the, over the years. And one of the chapter headings is uh, uh, Vidal Gore, is uh, a sort of old sort of, uh, uh, very sort of talented, very opinionated sort of uh, uh, writer, philosopher, et cetera. And he said, the four most important words, uh, I told you so. And uh, it was just really sort of interesting around that sort of style and, uh, and arrogance in some ways, but equally it was an assurance of being 100% authentic is actually okay. And I, uh, I think the importance of being you is 100% uh, true because you won't unlock that potential. And it's another concept I have, and I start with virtually all my sort of keynotes and things, um, is this concept again, it's another percentage element, 98% rule. 98% of what you hear within feedback concepts, let it go over your shoulder. Uh, it's only the 2% that resonate with you. Those are the ones you take and actually build on. And the reason I say that is I've seen within so many young leaders, they get overwhelmed by the amount of feedback. You should be doing this. You should be going that way. Change your style, et cetera. You don't. You refine yourself, but you don't fundamentally change who you are. And that's what I'm hoping comes out of the book in itself. How do you really lift and develop yourself? I've got a chapter there called Noticed, Remembered, Understood, which is an advertising concept. Of all the methodologies within advertising, I won't bore you. There's so many you know, quantitative sort of uh, econometric models and things for all this, how you test you know, advertising behavior or attitude and all. The three principles are very simple. You have to be noticed, you have to be remembered and understood. Now, the same thing is around your personal branding style. So what's your leadership brand? How are you noticed in the first place? What are those signature artifacts that are unique to you and to nobody else? And when you document those, and this is a little bit like on the book, writing, you've found this yourself as well. It solidifies what's important to you as a leader and what are those values and principles that work, may not be right for everyone, but work for you and it just crystallizes what's important to you. And uh, that's what I sort of hope comes out of the sort of the, the book on a practical side around, okay, take concepts that work with you, but document them, socialize them, ingrain them within your behavior, refine, but don't change who you are. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, I like those uh, sort of different perspectives I, uh, I get from that. Awesome. Well, before we go, is there anything that uh, we haven't touched on that that you'd like to leave with the audience? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think the uh, the only element, probably, Dave, I think we've sort of talked around it a, a fair bit, and it may sound a little bit sort of altruistic, but. Um, I've got a, a pretty sort of firm view now of the, where things are happening within the world. Um, I think this uh, concept of just being an empathetic uh, leader is becoming even more important. 
um, probably relates back into some of that foundational work around sort of mental health, et cetera. Um, but uh, those caring and empathetic leaders with substance, by the way, <laughs> I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. It's, uh, yeah, the listening aspect is, is critical. And that's sometimes, and this is a weakness of me being solution-based person, sometimes just listen, nothing else. We don't need a solution. But to me, getting that balance between, so that empathetic sort of uh, caring side, really looking after other people, but with viable sort of substance behind it, I think is absolutely key. So uh, I think uh, this is where I'm pretty positive around the, the next generation coming through. I think they are a lot more empathetic, not in all cases, but uh, I think a majority, which uh, makes me hopefully uh, a radiator as opposed to a drain within my own thoughts. For, for those listening that want to pick up a copy of your book, um, where's the best place for them to get it? And, and yeah. what's the best place to uh, connect with you? Yeah, so uh, it's uh, Wiley, obviously, with the normal sort of, you know, major sort of bookstores and things, but probably best for you US sort of uh, North American readers, just Amazon within that. It's not always right to be right. And then probably best just uh, jump through uh, the website, uh, Hamish uh, R. Thompson, which is H-A-M-I-S-H, uh, and then T-H-O-M-S-O-N um, dot com um, or LinkedIn or one, one of those other than that. I'm not a massive Twitter uh, person within that. Uh, I know I should be sort of thing, but uh, be interesting to see uh, Twitter under new leadership, how that sort of goes. But uh, that's a, a weakness of me, but probably showing my age a little bit. Uh, but anyone uh, like to connect and all, uh, be more than happy on that front. Uh, but really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll have a link to your website in the show notes. And uh, man, thank you. All, all the best luck to you and, and your book. And really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Look forward to seeing you in Florida on the next visit. Yeah, hey, we'll have to get a beer. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.